thank you uh, that you are a good and loving God. Lord, we thank you that in your goodness to us, you have called people to stand on the front line to defend freedom and to look out for the safety and security of their brothers and sisters and their neighbors. We know that many of them have paid the ultimate sacrifice, and your, your son told us that that is the pinnacle of love. And so we thank you for the loving sacrifice of those who died serving in our armed forces. We ask for your blessing and comfort on their families this morning. We pray that this time of remembrance would be one of reflection of joy. Not in just simply mourning that we have lost someone, but in thankfulness that you have given people who will live in such a sacrificial way to us. So we pray for those families that you would comfort and strengthen them. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk for a moment. We're, this is our last of a sermon series called All Things New. We're, we're going to talk today about something I think is incredibly important. And it feels kind of funny because every week we've said, hey, this is incredibly important to the Christian life. And it, they are. Uh, th- these are significant things. And so today we want to talk about the hope that we have in Christ that is ultimately new. The scriptures will tell us in Ephesians that if we are outside of Christ, that we don't know him, that we are outside of God without him and without hope in the world. So that when we come to faith in Jesus, a new hope now belongs to us. And hope is important and significant in our lives. In fact, I believe that one of the most dangerous things in the world is hopelessness. And beyond that, I think if, if we watch uh, recent events in some of the major cities like uh, Baltimore, we'll find that young men with no hope, humanly speaking, are some of the most destructive forces in our world. Young men without hope, without a sense of a compelling future to strive towards, can be destructive. Despair itself leads to all sorts of issues. It's a dangerous thing. And so we want to talk about hope this morning. But I want to move beyond the way that we generally talk about hope. See, we talk about hope in terms of, of, of small things. I hope this happens. I hope that happens. I used to have a boss that, that we would ask you how things were going in your sales group, whether or not performance was going to be up to the standard that was set. And you would say, I hope so. He would immediately correct you and say, hope isn't a plan. Make a plan. Uh, so it's not wishful thinking. We're not saying we just, we're looking at things and we, well, we would like them to turn out better. So we hope they do. When the scriptures speak about hope, it's more than just some general positive vibe related to the future or some wish that things would get better. When we talk about hope in the Christian life, we're talking about a confidence and a longing for the promise of God. Confidence in that we trust and are secure that God will do what he says he will do. And longing that we desire to see it come to pass. One of my favorite theologians, uh, he's a bit on the academic side, but but very helpful. is a guy named Jürgen Moltmann. He became a Christian in a POW camp. See, Moltmann grew up in Germany, was 16 years old towards the end of World War II, was conscripted into the German military because there was no choice. And so uh, it was either the Allies would shoot at you from the front or your own guys would shoot at you from the back. And so he said, well, I guess I'm joining the army. And essentially he did what most of these young men did. The moment they saw the enemy combatants, so they saw an Allied military force, they put their guns down, put their hands up, and they went 
into a POW camp. And so he spent the first several years of his life as a Christian behind the barbed wire. He became a Christian because an army chaplain from the U.S. Army gave him a New Testament and shared the gospel with him. And he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he knows about hope and its power because there he was, a new believer in prison. Really not having done anything himself except being a part of a country that was busy tearing the world up. And so hope became central to his understanding of theology. And I want to share just a few things that that Moldman said about hope, about what it is and what it does in us. He says, faith binds man to Christ, but hope sets his faith open to the comprehensive future of Christ. Hope is therefore... An inseparable companion of faith. When this hope is taken away, however eloquently or elegantly we discourse concerning faith, we are convicted of having none. Moltmann said that if we truly believe that God is who he says he is, we will always have hope. We will always have hope because God has made great promises to us so if you are a hopeless the issue is not just that things are difficult its issue is that you have lost faith he goes on to define hope further he says hope is nothing else than the expectation of those things which faith has believed to have been truly promised by god this faith believes god to be true but hope awaits and anticipates a time when his truth shall be manifested Faith believes that he is our father. Hope anticipates that he will ever show himself to be a father toward us. Faith believes that eternal life is being given to us. But hope anticipates that it will at some time be revealed. He said faith is the foundation on which hope rests. And hope nourishes and sustains faith. So I want you to see the way we've framed the idea of hope In biblical theological terms, it's not just desiring for something to happen and thinking, oh, that would be good. I hope that happens. So I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl again in my lifetime. And and I do. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about just a general kind of liking the idea of something. What we're talking about is a confident belief that God has promised something. And because of that confidence, anticipating it becoming a reality. It's a belief that God will do what he has said he will do. And the desire to see it happen. And because of this, I believe that hope is kind of central to daily Christian living. living. That, That we're not going to live faithfully day in and day out. If we don't have a strong sense of hope given to us because of the promises of God. And so I want to for a moment jump into the scriptures and begin to think through how hope works in our lives. I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter one, chapter five, verse one. He says this since therefore, since we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. So I want you to see the way hope works. It begins 
with a foundation. And if you look at this text, you're going to see that the foundation is twofold. He gives us two significant terms. One, he says you've been justified. And the other is that you stand in grace. In grace. And so I want to talk about this foundation for the hope that we have. It begins with this concept of justification. Which is to say that God has looked upon us and declared us not guilty. And therefore no longer presently awaiting his punishment. So God has looked upon us and he has looked at us even though we had sinned against him and deserved his judgment. And he makes a declaration. Not guilty. Justified. You have right standing. Justification is a declarative act where God proclaims something to be true. And gives us right standing with him. But it's not just something God does. God didn't just look at us and say, oh, not guilty. There's a lot more to that. So we say justification. We've got to understand the means by which we are justified. The means by which God declares us not guilty of our sin. The scriptures say that Jesus died for us. Making payment for our sin. So it's not just that God looks upon us and says, not guilty. That would not be just. Man must pay for sin. It's a requirement for God to be just, that, that man should pay for his sin. And so here's, here's where God's movement of love enters into the picture. The incarnation occurs. God takes on the form of man, the eternal Son of God, fully man and fully God. He lived a sinless life, and he died for our sin. Athanasius, the early church father, the hero of the Council of Nicaea said that man owed to God a debt that only man should pay. But the debt was so great that only man, only God could pay. So only man should pay because man had incurred judgment against God. But the debt was so great that only God could dispatch the debt. And so the answer is found in the incarnation that God took on humanity. The God-man Jesus Christ. And he died in our place for our sin as our brother as man taking the payment that man deserved to pay but with the infinite resources of god in perfect righteousness and when martin luther looked at this he called it the great exchange he says our sin was accounted to jesus and when we believe in him his righteousness was accounted to us that a transaction occurred it's called justification that a transaction occurs in which god says your book's are settled. The debt is paid. That's why Jesus on the cross, the last words are, it is finished. The debt is paid. By His blood, He made justification. So because of the work of Jesus, God has made us right with Him. And that justification forms the first leg of the foundation of our hope. The second is this term grace. And that's where we begin to ask the question, why would God send His only Son to die in a brutal manner for the sins of men and women who rebelled against Him? Why would God do that? That doesn't make sense. And, and, and truthfully, I don't have a good answer for that. I, mean, I, I can't explain to you why any one of us is lovable enough that God would do that. It doesn't make sense sense to me. And so the scriptures say this, that this is a love that defies logic. And the Bible labels the term grace, that it's an unmerited favor that God simply chose by his sovereign right to love and save us. He chose. 
It wasn't anything we did to earn it. In the book of Deuteronomy, as God looks at the people of Israel, He wants to communicate to them His love and care for them. And this is, this is what he tells me. He says, it's not because you were greater than any of the other peoples. In fact, you were the weakest and smallest of the nations. But I chose to love you because I chose to love you. This unmerited gift of God based solely in his desire and willingness to love and save us. And the beautiful thing about understanding grace as God's movement of love towards us, undeserved by us, is it had nothing to do with us. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything that would warrant God going, okay, today I'm going to love Skeet because he's demonstrated himself lovable. And the beautiful thing about that kind of love is there's nothing I can do to remove it because it isn't contingent upon me. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with God's unilateral choice to love me. And this doesn't lead to arrogance because we say this is in spite of us. This isn't because of us. So this is a humbling experience, but the foundation of our hope is found in this. It's found in understanding the justifying work of Christ where he died to pay for our sin. This access by faith. And that call has come to us because God is gracious and good. And so we rest in that relationship because it's a gift. It wasn't earned. It's the foundation of our hope. You see, outside of Christ, there is no hope. But having believed in him and been justified, we can celebrate in the hope of the glory of God, even in the midst of hardship. Ultimately, this is a confidence. It's a trust in God to do what he says he will do. Stephen M. R. Covey, in his book, The Speed of Trust, defines trust in this way. It's a complete confidence in the character and competence of of another. So if I trust someone, I am both confident in their character and their competence. And what we mean by that is, is if someone says they're going to do something, I believe, one, that they're desiring to do what they say they will do, and two, that they have the capability to do it. When we look at the issue of character, there's two sides of that. One is integrity, that I do what I say I will do, that there's congruence between my words and my, my actions. The other is my intention. So trusting someone's character, trusting their heart, comes down to believing that they have integrity, that they, that they do what they say they will do, and their intention being good towards you. See, you don't, you don't trust people who are honest but have negative intentions towards you. You shouldn't trust them. And you shouldn't trust people who have kind intentions, but they, they lie all the time. And you shouldn't trust people who are sweet uh, but incompetent to do what they say they will do. That, that you, you shouldn't trust people like that. So, so why are we talking about this? Well, the, the question at hand when it comes to hope is, are we confident that God will do what he says he will do? Do we trust his heart? Do we believe that he has a good intention towards us? Do we believe that he's honest to us? Do we believe that his word is true? And do we believe that God has the power and ability to deliver what he said he will deliver? And if we do, the natural progression from that trust is a hope and longing for the good things that God has promised. We long to see the promises of God become a reality in our day. And so this is where I want to talk for a moment. It's okay to say that we have hope in God, that he will do what he said he will do. We have to ask, what are the promises that we're clinging to? 
What are these promises? Because there's a number of things that we could hope for in the future that God hasn't promised. And if we're not clear about that, what will happen is that we'll walk around believing that God is going to do something that he didn't say he would do. And that's a dangerous place to be because our confidence and faith and hope in God will begin to erode all because we were simply confused. And so I want to be clear about the central hope of the Christian faith. And I want you to look in Revelation chapter 21 with me. Verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no, no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. What's the promise? Well, the promise is that Jesus is going to return. He's going to make all things new. I want you to turn back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 quickly. And then we want to talk about both of these passages together. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have the hope of the resurrection from the dead. In verse 50, I want you to look there. It says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and bone cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to take all these and we want to view these together. I'm going to give you the promises of God for us and and this is how it works is that some of us will die before the lord returns and those of us who do what's going to happen is we're going to be buried cremated lost at sea whatever happens to our physical body and our spirit at the moment that we're approaching death will go and to be in the presence of the lord to be absent the body is to be present with the lord and so the grace of god transcends the grave but that's not the end of the story The end of the story, the final hope for those who believe in Jesus is not this kind of disembodied state where our spirits are with Jesus. Now, that is a good place. It is a place where there is no more pain. It is better than suffering here on earth. It's a good place, but there's more in store for us. The promise is that we will be resurrected, that that body that was sown in weakness will be raised in honor, that was sown in mortality will be raised in immortality, that was sown perishable will be raised imperishable. And the pattern of the resurrection that we are to expect is the pattern of the resurrection of Jesus. 
He's the first of many to rise from the grave. And so our longing and expectation is not simply that one day if we hold on, we're going to die and then we'll go be with Jesus in heaven. The hope of the New Testament goes beyond that, saying that is true, but there's more to the story. Don't short sell it. There's going to be a physical resurrected body and an eternal kingdom of God. And it's a kingdom of God that is fundamentally different from the one that we live in today. Think about the way that he described it. He said, a new way of things is coming. I'm making all things new. The old order of things has passed away. Well, what's the old order of things? Weeping, mourning, pain, injustice, hardship, lack. And so he says, whatever it was will be no more. And he goes on in Revelation to say that those who are thirsty will come to me and drink without cost. That's a big hope. Big. Now, now the, the struggle for us is going to be <clears throat> twofold. One is we're going to read these texts and all of a sudden, we're, some of us are going to have this kind of innate instinct that we need to draw a chart. And, and that, okay, so I just read that. And so, um, what does everything mean? Like, what's the last trumpet? When does it go off? Can you hear that? Um. So all things new and there's no sea. So is it is like this new heaven and the new earth? Is it is the same place kind of redone like a remodel job? Or did we level it and start over? And so some of you are kind of prophecy nerds and that's okay. I'm with you. And you're going to start trying to answer all the questions. But here's the problem in that. Could we just press pause on that and recognize that we're not, when it comes to the return of Jesus, we're not in the planning committee. We're just in the welcoming team. We, he's coming and, and we could talk about the details of, of particular views of what the order of events are and how it happens. But look, let, let's deal with the central reality. He's coming and he's going to change everything. And that's good. And, and, and when he comes, whatever we're suffering with, whatever we're enduring today will be over because he's going to stop it. He's going to end mourning, pain and suffering. And, and he's going to comfort those who have been grieved. He's going to wipe the tear from their eyes. We will no longer be, tr- be struggled, struggling in a world that is wrecked by sin. And I'll tell you one that, that I am longing for. Is that when the scriptures talk about this moment that we're changed in the twinkling of an eye. The word that comes up is that we'll be glorified. Which is to say that we'll be completely transformed. That all of the effects and presence of sin will be completely expunged from us. Whatever that means. So physical decrepancy. There's no more arthritis in, in, in the kingdom. Right, Whatever it is, those things are, are taken from us because they are evidence of the fall and decay. And God's eradicating not only the creation and wor- the world, but also us. In addition to that, glorification, this is the thing that I, that I long for. Glorification means that my sin nature will be cleansed. That no longer will the civil war wage inside of me where, where like Paul says in Romans 7, the thing that I hate, I do, and the thing that I want to do, I don't do. Like, I want you to just sit on that for a minute and recognize if you have enough awareness to know that you are sinful. The sin that you struggle with the most, the day that you are completely and fully set free from it. That's coming too. 
This isn't just the, the kind of transformation of the external world to be better. This is transformation of me to be Christ-like. And that sin that clings to me will no longer be there. And, and, and so that's what we're looking for. Now, here's where I think this is powerful. Is that hope, that anticipation changes us. And it changes us in everyday life. Because not only do we have the promise of it coming to pass, God has said from every day between now and then, I'll be with you. I'll never leave or forsake you. So we have his enduring presence and we rejoice, Romans, 1, Romans 5 says, in the hope of God, even though we are suffering at the moment. This is where I think Romans 5 is so insanely practical. He doesn't tell us to have hope in God and just kind of omit the difficult realities of life. He says have hope in God so that even in the midst of suffering, you can rejoice because you know that that suffering, if you cling to God, will produce endurance in you. It's going to produce character in you. And that process is going to magnify your hope. Learning to endure is a blessing. Because God has promised blessings to those endure, who endure with Him transforming our character here and now in anticipation of the day that we're glorified is a blessing. And in the end, it creates hope. And I want you to think about how endurance through hardship and transforming our character creates and builds hope in us. Because I think this is important. Hope is, we said foundationally, that hope is built on the grace of God through this work of justification. And embedded in that is the reality that our sins are forgiven. We're made right with God. Heaven is our home and Christ will come back for us. That, that's all kind of built into that. And so that's the promise that we're clinging to. And as we read texts like Revelation 21, we see this new order of things where weeping and crying and mourning is no more. And, and, and so I got that in front of me. And then I look at today. It doesn't feel that way. Um... This is an interesting day for me to be preaching on hope because just in the, in the last kind of 24 hours, I've been able to, to pray with some people going through some circumstances that would cause you to question your hope and to sit with them and then to, to be in my study last night prepping for this and then to get a text from a, from a friend who, who comes here. Um, I got to baptize his wife and do their wedding and, and, and she is uh, in a house on the river and the water's rising, and they're trying to get rescuers in there. And so, by God's grace, she's been rescued. But we're just praying. And so, in all of this, so there's like reasons for despair and anxiety. And here I am, like praying, and in my study going, hope, hope. We're talking about hope. But here's what happens, is that in the midst of all that kind of messiness, the clarity of our hope becomes greater and brighter. The, the, the difficulty, our sufferings of the day, they're not fake, they're not unreal, they're not to be dismissed and, and so that we can go be cheery and hopeful. No, that's not what the Scriptures are saying. What they're telling us is that that hardship and suffering is real and in the midst of the gravity of that, what we are anticipating becomes all the more beautiful. When you're mourning, because you've lost someone, or something has fallen apart on you, and, and you recognize there's a day that that's over, that that morning is replaced by joy, that day becomes more beautiful, and you long for it more intensely. Suffering 
if we cling to Jesus, builds our hope. Our hardships remind us that this world as it is today is not our home. And hope tells us what our home is like. And in the midst of that tension, the Scriptures say we can walk through suffering even with rejoicing because we know this isn't the end of the story and we know that in, in the back of all of this mess, there's a God who loves us. A God who has good things in store for us, who is going to use whatever this mess is, however we ended up in it, to change us and to give us greater joy in him so that we can rejoice in the glory of God. And because all that happens, here's one of the things that that takes place as hope changes us, is that hope forces us into action. Because when we're in that moment and that tension between the way the world is and the way that the world should be, God begins to call us to begin taking restorative movements today. See, we look forward to a day when there is no mourning, and because of that, we become people who comfort those who mourn. We look forward to a day when death is no more, and because of that, historically, the church has led the charge in creating hospitals and serving people. We look forward to a day in which no one starves, and because of that, the church has led out in fighting global hunger. We look forward to a day when there are no more orphans because God will be with us and be our Father. And so the church is now leading out, caring for those who are orphaned. You see that? These are not rooted in just kind of, you ought to do this sort of things. These are based in the hope that we have of the future. I think the most public example of that in America's history is the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King had his famous I Had a Dream speech where he described this world in which little black boys and and little white boys could run and play together. And and the overarching theme of that hope would be a day that that men are not judged by the color of their skin but the content of their character. But, But he would tell you right away that that is rooted in the Christian scriptures. It's rooted in the hope of what God would do. It wasn't some side thing that was kind of helpful and nice if it happened. It was a natural expression for him of pursuing the kingdom of God. And so hope drives us to do the hard thing because we see a future that is available when Jesus returns. We see a kingdom coming and we desire to see it break through incrementally into the world around us. So hope drives us into activity. So when you find yourself hopeless, man, you're going to ask a lot of questions. How do we get here? There's a number of options on that. Sometimes it's just the reality of living in a fallen world. Sometimes we make decisions that are destructive. Sometimes other people make decisions that are destructive. And in the end, we find ourselves wondering what happened and how we got there. And the bigger question for me is how do we move forward? And I would, I would tell you this, is that in the midst of that, Scripture is clear that God is with you. See, the Bible never promises a life without hardship. It never promises that. The Bible promises that he will be with you, that he will comfort you, and that he will strengthen you. And that if you endure with him, he will bless you. In fact, Jesus says if you're going to follow him, you're going to have hardship, going to have difficulty. So don't think that God has left you because you endure hardship. Look, Jesus died on the cross. 
God wasn't displeased with him. He was, he was doing this as because of the will of the Father. Difficulty is not a sign that God has walked away. God is present and draws near to the brokenhearted. And that's a promise. And I would tell you this, is that whatever you're going through, compared to the hope in front of us, the scriptures would say is relatively insignificant. Now that sounds harsh. Right? When someone's dealing with something incredibly difficult to say, eh, that's small. What? I want you to, to, to let this idea soak in with, with me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. <clears throat> it says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want you to think about this. Paul, a man who has recounted his sufferings of being shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, ridiculed, and rejected. This guy, Paul, says all of that light and momentary affliction. Light and momentary I mean, Paul's preaching the gospel in Lystra and they drag him out of the city and they throw rocks at him until they think he's dead. Paul looks at that moment and he goes, light and momentary. Three nights in the open sea, light and momentary. Imprisoned, shipwrecked, beaten, light and momentary. What? It is not that we diminish the hardship of the circumstance when we say that. It's rather that we expand and expound on the glory of our hope. So, so it's not that the, what you're going through isn't hard. That's not what the scripture's saying. It's not that it's, it's little on its own. It's just little in comparison to the blessing that's coming. So whatever you're just frustrated with, whatever is threatening to steal you and steal your hope and rob you of your joy, I want you to understand the scripture calls that Light and momentary, not because it's little, not because God lacks compassion, but because by comparison, there's something so much richer available to you. And you may not be able to see a way out of this, but I love what what we just read there. He said, yeah, you're focusing on what can be seen. But there is a spiritual war going on. There are things happening that you can't see. And God is moving and he's moving in ways you can't see. Will you trust him? See, that's what this whole hope thing comes down to. One is, do we know the promise of God? Do we long to see them come to reality? And do we trust God to do what he said he will do? And if we trust him, that doesn't make our difficulties disappear. It sustains us in the midst of them. If we have belief. All of this is built on the reality that we've experienced the grace of God, having believed that Jesus died for us and rose again and are justified by his blood. And so here's what I'd like to do. If you are here today and you're in one of those moments that holding on to hope is difficult, we want to pray for you. So I want to ask ask the band if you guys could come up. If you are here today and you're just in one of those circumstances that, that hope is hard to cling to. 
that you would stand. You don't have to confess anything. You don't have to tell anybody anything. But you would just let yourself be prayed for. And guys, so if you look around you see somebody standing, I want to ask you to gather around them and begin to lift them up for God to strengthen them. So I'm going to ask you to step out here. If, if, if you are in need of God to strengthen you, restore you, and give you hope to keep pressing on, would you stand so that we could pray for you, so that we could lift you up?